0: That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Optimal Living Daily, episode 768, an excerpt from the audiobook, Everything That Remains, a memoir, by Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, and I'm Justin Mollick, your very own personal narrator. Welcome to Optimal Living Daily, or OLD for short, where I narrate the best blogs, sometimes books, I can get permission from to help you optimize your life. So today's a continuation from yesterday and the day before. I am sick and using previously recorded material to get a little break. The minimalists have been kind enough to let me play their audiobook here on the show. I'm hoping this will be the last day. I'll finish up chapter one for you and then be back tomorrow reading blogs, hopefully. Of course, if you want chapter two also, send me a message. Actually, I'll talk about that at the end of the show. So for now, let's finish up chapter one and continue optimizing your life. The meeting is adjourning. Laptops close, overhead lights flicker on, a general sense of relief galvanizes the semi-sedate crowd. The room begins to evacuate, disassemble. All the smokers scatter first, shutting toward the exits on both sides of the room like they're escaping a burning building. It might be sort of nice to be a smoker right now, to have something to look forward to. I look up and Ryan is already gone, dematerializing as he often does. Moments later I notice his feet under a bathroom stall's barrier, trousers bunched around his ankles, partially covering his $400 shoes. I'm wearing the same brand, black cap toe oxfords, polished and ready for duty. I'm washing my hands when I hear the toilet flush and the stall door swing open with great force. How are things with that new girl? I ask Ryan's reflection in the mirror. Which one? He says, feigning confusion. The redhead, the one from the bar, I say and pull a paper towel from the wall dispenser. Last week he introduced me to this new girl who he seemed to really like, though I've forgotten her name. Well, how should I put this? He says through a wry smile. She and I went out Friday night, dinner and then drinks, then we took her car back to her place. We started making out on her couch, and you know, one thing led to another. We'd both had too much to drink. Things got a little weird. Not out of control, just weird. You know, just tearing clothes off and stuff. I fixed my hair in the mirror as he continues his tale. Anyway, we both passed out at like 3 in the morning, but she had to be at work at like 8, so I slept in and told her I'd just walk to my car, which wasn't that far away. Maybe like a mile or so, so no big deal, right? But the next morning, I couldn't find my underwear or my belt and my jeans were ripped down the front of the zipper and her glitter was all over me. Glitter? My walk of shame looked like I'd hooked up with an undomesticated unicorn. I looked at him with half scorn and half envy. Although he was married at 18, Ryan has been divorced for five years, the same amount of time I've been married. I have it in my head that he is living the ideal life, having fun, doing interesting things, dating attractive women. I, on the other hand, am hardly having sex at all. My primary for s- relationship is with my left hand. What did you think about that episode of CSI Miami last week? Ryan asks, changing the subject, his hands under the running faucet. I didn't... Yeah, I couldn't believe it either. A burly Chad Ratcliffe, director of some ambiguous department, butts in. He sort of just surfaced out of nowhere. I honestly can't figure out where he comes from half the time. At age 30 he's a dozen belt buckle holes past his high school prime and accordingly he shouldn't be as nimble as he is when he weaves in and out of conversations. He continues monitoring before I can respond. That the guy with the Yankees hat was the guy who committed the murder earlier in the season. What a great great ending. A great way to end the season. Never saw that coming did you? Like I was saying I haven't seen the last episode yet. I DVR'd it for tonight I say sows with annoyance. Oh, my bad. Well, it wasn't that great anyway. Chad backpedals, pirouettes, and exits the restroom without grabbing a paper towel, his hands still dripping. Ryan looks at me and shrugs. The hallway leading to the elevator bank is mental hospital white, steeped in vivid fluorescence, a windowless corridor inside this million-windowed building. I'm frustrated. All I can think of as I walk toward the elevators is how much I was looking forward to watching CSI Miami this evening, the highlight of my day. I imagine myself sprawled out on my couch, parked in front of my big screen, high-def television with the surround sound going, sunk into the soft leather, laptop on my lap, responding to emails while David Caruso and his team of cop scientists solve crimes in the steamy tropical surroundings and cultural crossroads of South Florida, just a few hours south of where my mother lives. It's not even 9.30 in the morning and a coworker has already managed to ruin my evening. I remove four Advil from my briefcase, wash them down with coffee. The elevator dings, and when the doors open, the tiny vessel regurgitates a handful of employees, leaving one other person in the elevator. Our company's CEO, Rod Bracken. Rod is a man with whom you don't want to share an elevator. People, in fact, go way out of their way, taking massive, often irrational precautions to avoid the intimidating pseudo-interrogation that inevitably occurs during an elevator ride with Rod. I would personally run a half marathon in stilettos to avoid being in the same claustrophobia-inducing space as him, but it's too late for me, and so I step on board and press the button for the 16th floor. I can do this. It's just a few floors. Hey, Jason, good to see you. Rod's false excitement interrupts my thoughts. I'm not sure why he thinks my name is Jason. He has likely mistaken me for Jason Epperson, a colleague of mine who has a somewhat similar role but who is also a foot shorter than me. Tallness-wise, Rod is situated somewhere between tall and very tall, roughly my height, yet he seems to tower over me. He is expensively dressed, tailor-made everything, his posture bespeaks elitism. So far removed from my world, it's impossible to imagine him grocery shopping or folding laundry or jamming change into a parking meter. He speaks in a gruff smoker's voice, not unlike that of a conservative talk show host. There's a 100% chance he voted for G.W. Bush, twice. But then again, I might have two. It's what you're supposed to do in this circle. How's it going out there in the stores, Jason? He asks, a candid smile pasted on his weathered face. Rod is savagely tan. He extends a large hand for me to shake. His grip is devastating. He knows I'm in charge of a slew of retail stores, but what he doesn't realize is that I'm also director, which paradoxically means I don't actually spend that much time in the stores I'm in charge of, mainly because I'm here, downtown, wasting away in meeting after meeting, marketing meetings, product meetings, P&L meetings, operations meetings, merchandising meetings, customer churn meetings, vendor meetings, customer retention meetings, human resource meetings. Sometimes we have pre-meeting meetings, that is, meetings about upcoming meetings. I wish I were kidding. I consider explaining all this to Rod, but I refrain and instead reply with a delicate balance of vagueness and specificity, strategically crafted BS laced with a few data points that I hope will keep my particular brand of BS from sounding like, um, complete BS, The elevator might as well be moving backward at this point. It's just now dinging for the 12th floor. Rod looks at me solemnly. Can he see through my cellophane layer of gibberish? Then, quite unexpectedly, the moving coffer stops with a jolt, and I'm saved when the doors part like a scene from the Bible, and he exits onto the plush, wood-grain 12th floor, the mystic executive floor. It's odd that the executive floor is on a lower floor than mine, as though one must traverse the depths of hell to make it back to purgatory. Rod looks back into the elevator, looks me in the eyes. We need a good sales month out there. I'm counting on you, Jason, he says as the doors close between us. Relief washes over me. I squeegee my face with my right hand, breathing in through my nostrils, and after holding my breath for two more floors, I breathe out a deep, yogic breath. The walk to my corner office, past the cubicle farms, the same color as Thousand Island Dressing, past the colored break room and its aggravating vending machines, past the cliche scene of two young women chatting at the water cooler, is unremarkable. A herd of smokers is returning, moving slowly around the foamy dividers, more bovine than human, their teeth sepia on the 16th floor's emphatic lights. My corner office is less impressive than it sounds. The Lilliputian space, sterile and uninteresting, sort of looks like how old movies used to portray the future, faux-futuristic, the future from the past. My entire life is inside these walls. Behind me, the view is of a high-rise building across the street, which is nearly identical to the high-rise building I'm sitting in right now a view of their view, of my view of their view, a sort of real-life M.C. Escher sketch. The rain wraps soundlessly on the office's aquarium glass, thick and tinted. you can't see the sky from which the rain is falling, just a jungle of vertiginous skyscrapers. Without these tall buildings obstructing the view, you can see northern Kentucky from here, directly across the Ohio River, four blocks south of my office. I wake my computer from its slumber by jiggling the mouse vigorously. Phil Collins's percussion-heavy hit, In the Air Tonight, a song released the same year I was born, is seeping through my computer's tinny speakers, sating my Patrick Bateman-esque appetite for Collins' solo stuff. I can't help but sing along while scrolling my email queue. Well, I remember. I even mimic the dramatic drum sequence that leads Collins into the final chorus. Do-da-do-da-do-da-do-da-da-da. My inbox is bloated with 240 messages. Ding! Make that 241 messages, still mounting. I reach for a paperclip and accidentally knock over my fourth coffee. The hot liquid seizes my keyboard and then drips from the desk onto my crotch. I stop the runoff with half a ream of printer paper, each page soaked with my mistake. My life occurs mostly in boxes. Each morning I leave my box home, drive my box car to my box building, ride the box elevator to my box office, stare at the glowing box on my desk, eat a box lunch. Hop from box room to box room for various meetings where we're encouraged to think outside, you guessed it, the box. Drive my box car back to my box home, microwave a box dinner, which I eat in front of the idiot box in my box-shaped living room. I do this five or six days a week, 50 weeks a year. Lather, rinse, repeat. Today at noon, I eat lunch by myself, my only opportunity to satiate my unquenchable thirst for solace. The afternoon is peppered with back-to-back-to-back meetings, meeting Monday, we like to call it, which I sit through with stained pants and a bloodshot heart. During each meeting, I nod congenially as people make their points. I interject forged enthusiasm at appropriate intervals, hoping to impress the people I'm supposed to impress. The meetings are over by 5.30, although most of my floor cleared out an hour earlier. But those pikers aren't on the same track as me. They aren't willing to sacrifice like I am to get where I'm going, wherever that may be. Sacrifice. What an interesting word. What does it mean? I often ask myself whether I'm sacrificing enough, but I wonder whether I should ask myself better questions like, am I loving enough? Am I caring enough? Am I contributing enough? I don't think I like the answers, so I dismiss the thought. Each morning I arrive at the office before sunrise when the sky still has that pre-dawn color of an overripe eggplant. Most days I'm the first or second person on the entire 16th floor. Occasionally my boss's churlish boss is here before me, but I haven't seen him as much lately. He's going through a divorce that's rumored to be quite nasty. The trick is to get to the office early and leave late, effectively killing two birds with one stone. One, the bosses are impressed by the sheer volume of hours worked, and two, you get to beat rush hour traffic, which is important since I live in a distant exurb, a suburb of a suburb, a commuter town parched halfway between Cincinnati and Dayton. Even when there's no traffic, it takes me 45 minutes to drive home, three times that during rush hour. So I stick around the office most nights until seven, where it's just me and Omar, the friendly, ageless Nigerian cleaning guy who loves to overwater everyone's plants. Would you like me to empty your trash, Mr. Milburn? Omar asks, just as he does every night. You can just call me Joshua, I remind him. Yes, sir, Mr. Joshua, he says, and then removes the thin plastic liner from my wastebasket. Merry Christmas, he adds before he wheels and exits my office. He stops by each night to empty my trash and to say hi, we've established a rapport. I probably have a better relationship with Omar than with 90% of my family. Merry Christmas, I respond. I am seated in my office, catching up on the never-ending stack of emails and losing a solitaire. The winter sun has already set. A streak of blood-red twilight reflects off the windows across the street. I look down at my phone and remember to check my voicemail. You have eight new messages, the robotic Anglo woman informs me. The second message is from Mom. Her voice takes over the speaker. Honey, it's me. Can you call me back? It's important is all the message says, followed by several seconds of silence as she struggles to hang up. Something's wrong. I can tell she's been crying. Her slurred cadence is outfitted in red wine, indicating a return to the bottle. Phil Collins, stuck on repeat, is still crooning through my speakers. I turn down the volume and dial mom's number, but then pause, hovering over the send button, suspended in time. Moments go by, staring at the phone screen, waiting. I'm not ready to bear the weight of whatever she's about to reveal. You just listened to an excerpt from the audiobook Everything That Remains, a memoir by Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. All right, so that's chapter one in the books, literally. If you wanna hear chapter two, send me a message through oldpodcast.com or in our Facebook group, however you wanna get a hold of me, and let me know. If a bunch of people ask for it, I'll play another chapter. It's really up to you. I can play a good chunk of the book, but I like to save it for times like these when I'm not feeling well and don't wanna narrate. But in either case, let me know if you wanna hear more. I'm gonna go get some rest. Hope you're having a great one. And I'll see you tomorrow, hopefully with some blog post narration and where your optimal life awaits.